Lord willing, we'll be going down there next July. I might allow Ray to share a conference with me at the islands. <laughs> Actually, they invited Ray to come down next July, and I asked him if I could join him. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1 for a couple minutes before we um, close in prayer. What I'd like to do is to be able to take just a segment of what we did with them in Nehemiah 1 and how we use some of the observations and how we're able to get together to get at the main idea of what's being taught. So this might be, uh, might be kind of fast, and I'll try to not be more than uh, 40 minutes. <laughs> it's not the eagles. You know, there's such a difference between a hiker slash explorer and a tourist. Lord willing, um, five of us, maybe six, will be going to the Grand Canyon in June, and we'll be hiking down to the bottom and then another hike in Zion National Park, hiking slash discipleship um, trip that we're doing. And, you know, a, a, a hiker or an explorer will approach it completely different than a tourist. I'll tell you what the tourists will do. They'll get to the south from the Grand Canyon, and they'll take the couple-mile bus tour, get out at the five, six sites, look at them if they feel so energetic to get out at all of the sites because they might think it just looks all the same. Then they'll get back in eating their little snack and all of their special Coke and drinks and then get back on the bus, go back to the lodge and binge out at the restaurant area. Whereas a hiker or a, um, an explorer will do his research. He's going to get to know the land. He's going to get to know the temperature. He'll know his supplies, that what he needs um, to be have a successful trip. He'll not carry too much as I did the first time we went down and kill yourself. You have just enough so that you um, will meet your needs but not enough to wear you out. You'll look at the top and you'll soak it all in, spend a long time just drinking in the beauty of the scenery. Then you'll hike down, enjoying the, the rocks and the formation, the trails and the cutbacks, how they keep cutting back. Then you get to the bottom and then it's just the beginning of the glorious time as you're up looking up at the canyon. You'll make your way over to the Colorado River and just exclaim how great is our God when you just soak in and really get to know the land. That's a hiker. That's an explorer. That's what we want to be when we come to the Word of God. We don't want to be like a tourist. We just hit some of the familiar passages, boom, bolt out of there, and run to another familiar passage. Um, when we feel like getting out of the bus or on that particular day, getting into the Word of God and studying it, you know, but we want to be explorers. We want to dig in, saturate the truth, rip it apart, and just enjoy what is before us. So as you're, we turn to Nehemiah chapter Chapter 1, in these three steps, in observation, we're asking, what do I see? What's before me? Interpretation, what does it mean? In application, how does it apply to my life? How does it relate to my life? How does it change my life? And though we try to really take those steps separately, I'm going to kind of merge them together in the couple of minutes that, that we have left together. Let's say we were jumping in, into verse 4, which would really be going against what we should do. But we get to verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, what does that force us to do? As soon as I heard these words, it forces us back to the, what? To the context. What words? What words is he talking about? So we kick back to verse 1, and we're reading about Nehemiah. And so we come there in our observation, and we look at what is written and what isn't written. Okay? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And we pause a moment, and we say, okay, who's Nehemiah? We're asking questions. Who is he? Uh, what does his name mean? 
You know, and so we write these down on our sheet, raising questions. What does it mean? And our research will show us, similar to even Nahum, it means that the Lord comforts. And we write a question mark, the Lord comforts. Is God going to bring comfort through Nehemiah? But what isn't said about Nehemiah? Is he a priest? Is he a prophet? Doesn't say. So we seem to have a man that's not a priest. We have a man that's, that's not a prophet. So we're, we're a little bit more piqued here because he's not the professional clergy, so to speak. Who is this man? And I know we, we know about Nehemiah, but as we read through, we come to, to verse 1. In the month Kislev, what's a question we should ask when we get to that? What in the world is Kislev? I mean, that's, that's good to, to raise that question, and we want to we wanna figure that out. And we're answering questions. When, what, where, how, when, why? So we, we, we ask when and, and where. I mean, what is the when here? What, when is Keslev? And we would find it's November, December. But that will especially become important when we go down to chapter 2, verse 1, and we see the month Nisan. And we ask, well, when is that? And we're going to find that that's four months later. But again, we're really jumping ahead here. In the 20th year, What's a question we should ask about the 20th year? Because we, wanna, we want to know the setting. You know, so just questions that, that we just keep raising 20th year is really looking at, at Artaxerxes, and we would find that answer um, a little bit. And then as we make our way down, we see it says Susa. Um, we talk to the students. Get a, get a dictionary. Find out where it's, where it's recorded before. Compare Scripture with Scripture. So we find out where Susa's talked about. And when we start to find out where it's talked about, the book of Esther will just continually be filling the page. Some 19 times. Susa, 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 Susa. So now we're starting to put it together. We have here our, our book, Nehemiah and, and Esther. What's the time frame? And then we, we find Daniel talks about it in chapter 8, which we don't have time, but that one should really highlight us because that's before the Persians were there. So what is God doing in Daniel 8 before the Persians are even in, in, in power and before they're at Shushan or Susa? You know, so it just really jumps alive. So, so look on a Bible map. You know, where is this happening? What's, what's, what, what is Shushan? And right about here, we should probably slam the brakes on. And we said, okay, I don't have the background. What's the setting? What's, what's the historical background that's happening here? And so we pause for a moment as we're in our study and we, we try to put it all together, which is very important because we're going to come across God's story and Nehemiah's story here when we figure out what's happening. So we look at Judah is in captivity. In fact, they now have been set free from captivity with Cyrus. So it's about 100 years later, but they're still in foreign lands. A few have returned. Um, they went into captivity because they were godless, because they were idolaters, because they, they had other gods that they were worshiping, and God sent them off. But now here's a man that understands a time frame that the children of Israel should be coming back. Things need to be in place in Jerusalem so that God's blessings can come about. And, and we're going to understand that he has a pretty good grasp of God's story that the children of Israel had to be back in the land. Jerusalem had to be restored so that what can happen? So one day there can be that cry on the hill of Bethlehem that we'll see next year. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. So Nehemiah in this setting, out of captivity, Jerusalem's not being restored as we'll see in a moment. 
Well, now, again, we're on a fast track here that we shouldn't do it so fast. But as we step down into verse 4, so verse 3, um, verse 2, two of his brothers come, they report what um, they just returned back from Jerusalem. Notice the order of questions that Nehemiah asks. What does he ask? He asks two questions in verse 2. And what's the order? He asks them concerning the Jews who escaped. And what's the second question in verse 2? He asks about what? About Jerusalem, the people and the place. So I make a note on my notes, in my notes. People and place. Is people more important than place? It is with God. Is it with me? But he asks that, and then they respond in the same order. Talks about the people, the reproach and the shame and the disgrace and all of the embarrassment that's happening to them, and the place is still a mess. So Nehemiah's response, as we get into verses 4 and following, but we should, we should ask, why does Nehemiah respond this way? Why is he so bothered that the people in the place is so, such a mess there in Jerusalem? Why is he bothered that things are happening as it is? Let me pause a moment. Another way that we stress with our students, read the Bible imaginatively. You like to play make-believe, you know, like... Imagine things, you tell a story to your kids or your grandkids and come up with this grandiose story. Put yourself in the shoes of the people. Feel what Nehemiah is feeling. Feel the pain that he's feeling, that he hears of the disgrace and the shame and what's happening in Jerusalem, and he's torn apart by that. Why does he have that response? What kind of a heart must he have to have that kind of response? These are all questions that we should raise because we're going to get to see Nehemiah's character that he was bothered, that he cared for people. He wasn't in his own world. He wasn't absorbed, may I say, in his own story, in, in his life. He wasn't all about himself, that, that something bothered him. And we need to ask, why did it bother him so? And we get to verse 4 and following. We see Nehemiah's response after he hears about the people and the place. There are four key verbs that we pick up. And as we read these verbs in verse 4, look at, look at his response. When I heard these words, what did he do? He wept, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Wept, mourned, fasted, prayed. So the first two seem to be emotional. The second two are spiritual, the last two. So why does he weep? Why does he mourn? Why does he, why does he fast? Why does he pray? Again, we're starting to learn about the man Nehemiah, what, what caused him to tick, what, what bothered him, what grieved him, how he was able to put himself into the shoes of his brethren and feel their pain. Why did it bother him so? In verses um, 6 and following, or really verse 4 and following, we see that the word prayed is, is repeated five times. Um, there's a lot of praying that's going on. So if we, we see prayer, the word prayer or prayer or praying is, is repeated so many times, what's that telling us about Nehemiah? In fact, it's used 11 times in, the, in 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. He is a praying man. So maybe I, I pause right here and I write on my sheet of paper, boy, if I want to learn about prayer, maybe I better listen to Nehemiah. Um, study his prayer out. Study the prayers. If I want to become a better prayer prayer warrior, I'm going to study the prayers of the Bible. Daniel 9, Ezra's prayer, Nehemiah's prayer. These are, are godly men and listen to their order. Um, we jump to really just, just kind of wrapping up. I want to zero in in verse 5. So he prays, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, what does he first do in his prayer? He focuses on God. So he's looking, and so I'm writing down these notes. So in his prayer, he first first runs to God. Maybe I would quickly write down, what do I do first in my prayer? Do I say, oh, Lord, I love you? Then I start to go through my, my personal requests. What, what absorbs me? So here Nehemiah is just focusing on God. So I would raise questions like, what does Lord mean? Okay, capital, okay, is Yahweh. We're familiar with that, but what does that mean? Okay, one that keeps his promises, one that's unchangeable, personal name of God, but reminding ourselves of that. Oh, Lord God of heaven. Why does he start with that? Then why does he run to the next phrase, who keeps covenant and steadfast love? Now, flashing lights are starting to go off. So I lean back and I think, keeps covenant. What is he reminding God about? And this becomes, I think, key. And I haven't stated the big idea. You see, we're still trying to develop what is this whole chapter about. Or if we may say, what's the big idea? So we're looking for things that are repeated or emphasized. And we look at um, the word prayer is, is mentioned five times, several times. So that's emphasized. He's focusing on God. That's emphasized. Dialogue slows it down. I mean, the pace is now crawling. You know, it's a snail crawl. We're not talking about days or weeks or months or years being covered. We're talking about minutes being covered. And, and, and he wants us to, God wants us to focus on something here. What is his heart? Oh, Lord God, who keeps covenant. So I'm scratching. He said, what covenant? What is he after here? He keeps covenant. He's reminding God of a promise and understanding of the whole Old Testament framework. We start to, to get it. Here is a man that's reminding God of a covenant promise, the Abrahamic covenants, and he's sensing they're not being quite to that point of fruition yet or fulfillment. And he's crying out to God for it to be fulfilled. God, and we're going to see what his request is, just a simple phrase, give me mercy in the sight of this man that will get to in a moment in verse 11. But he's focusing on God, and he's reminding God of his promises. Or may I say, he's reminding God of God's story. Right? God, God, your story is to keep your covenant. Your story is to keep your promises. And that story goes back to when you made man. Genesis 3.15, we plug right in there. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So the Old Testament story is the redemptive story. Right? And so here is he's looking at the promises of God. And he's sensing that, that Israel is in a special position. Jerusalem is special to bring about your promises. And he's crying, God, do it. And it's kind of neat when you look at it, he's focused so much on God. What's the natural out, outflow after you look at God? Man, and now I slam on the brakes and I'm wiping my brow because I'm realizing, God, I don't do this enough. Having been in your presence that I drop on my knees and cry out in confession, God, I'm a sinner. That's what he does. He says, we have sinned. So he's been in the presence of God and the next response is confession. See, if I want to learn about prayer, study these kind of prayers. And he confesses, and, he, and then he starts to unfold his petition in verses 8 and following, and he's crying out to God, God, please do this. And he's reminding God in verse 8, you know, your word, you commanded your servants, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. God, we've been, un- we've been scattered. We're all over the place. Well, it's just what your word, but, but if you return to me, God, we want to come back to me. There's a remnant that's crying out to you, God. 
though you're outcast in the other most parts that you will gather us back, that you'll, you'll call us back. And so he's reminding God of his covenant promises. He's, he's, I think he's connecting the dots. You understand what I'm, the, the, what's the dots? Over here he's seeing these, these dots, but what's the dots over here? Here's what God wants to do, right? Here's God's promise. Here's God's covenant. These are the dots. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to bring about my servant one day, and it's going to be in Jerusalem, and it's going to be the kingdom brought in. And then here's his dots. Here's Nehemiah. God raises up this Esther. Did God raise up Esther so Nehemiah would have grace and be able to become the cupbearer? I I think so. You know, it's kind of cool. Artaxerxes' dad is Ahasuerus. Um, Esther's husband, you know, so, so here's this, this flow and he's starting to get it. Man, am I, am I in this incredible position as the cupbearer, which we haven't gotten to yet because we're out of time. <laughs> um, but the cupbearer is a pretty awesome position. It's not just some guy that's, you know, is the waiter and you throw a tip down. All right, cupbearer, thanks. I'll see you at my next meal. He's like, trusted confidant he's like a real good buddy of of the king like they spent a lot of time together i'm going to trust you because you're going to make sure there's not poison in there because we're pretty tight and so they're they're good friends he's in this incredible position so he's starting to see god has me here in this position for a reason and he's starting to get that reason and he's crying out to god and we're done But he's crying out to God for four months. You know, one month, two months, three months, four months. You know what's really, really awesome is, and I write down in my notes, what is my tendency? When I have a heavy request, too often, and God forgive me of this, not to run around and talk to people, but to get on my knees and talk to God instead. He has the most powerful friend in the world that he sees every day that he talks to every day. He rubs shoulders with them every day. They have conversation every day. Hey, too bad about your team that they lost. You know, those, they have those sweet, and he, but he doesn't mention to him, oh, can you help my brothers out? He goes to the greatest friend that one can have. He lays his request before God, and he waits, and he says, God, give me mercy in the sight of the greatest ruler on earth. This man... He just said, tell <laughs> He says, this man, give me mercy. He understood that he was there for a purpose, that God had created him, that God had him in that season of his life for a reason. So what is, what is my story? What is, what is your story? You know, God has us where he does, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, with your friends for a reason. Yeah, what an awesome theme. I, I, I love the theme, Go to Grow. What are we doing with that? Are we praying, God, I'm in this position for a reason. I'm in this neighborhood for a reason. Does our heart cry like, like Nehemiah's cry? God, my heart is, is, is bursting. God, I'm I'm fasting. I'm praying for the lost. Give us, give us opportunity to have my story and your grace that has just changed my life impact them so that your story, God, I want my story to be part of your story, not your story, part of my story. God, I want it to be used and see you do great things.
Nehemiah, incredible man. Thanks, Ray, for putting up with me. It was a sweet time in, in Panama. Letting, being used that our stories would become part of, of God's, God's story. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray even tonight that you would give us opportunities that, no, Lord, I'm sorry. May we see the opportunities. May our eyes be open. May we see the people that you bring into our, into our lives. God, may our story not be not so big and you're so small that we forget you. God, may we not be so consumed with things that we want or we desire that are really idols in our lives. But God, may you be number one. May you be everything to us. May your life, your, your desires define us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.